0: All right, let's get into the message. If you have your Bibles, please turn to our text for today. Uh, We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and his sufficient word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. Amen. Ever since we were young, our parents have told us to stay away from strangers, right? And if you are a parent, you have told your kids the same thing. Don't don't hang out with strangers. Don't talk to strangers. Don't take candy from strangers. Certainly do not jump in a van of a stranger. Why? Because stranger danger, right? You want to keep, you want to keep Your loved ones, you want to keep your children or your parents wanted to keep you from harm and from danger. And as we got older, we committed to this practice. We continued to practice this idea of avoiding unsafe people and unsafe situations. For many of you, if you're walking down a dark street or an alley or uh, in in the middle of the night and you see someone walking towards you and they look dangerous or they look sketchy or questionable. Many of you guys will, you know, course correct. You'll go to the other side of the street. You'll go to the far side of the curb just to avoid possible or potential danger. Or maybe if you're walking with your girlfriend or your wife, you'll hold your wife a little bit closer or you'll hold your kids behind you just to protect them from a possible danger While my wife was working at a downtown clinic here in Los Angeles, uh, she was really close to Skid Row. And if you don't know, Skid Row is one of the more dangerous areas in our city. And at night, you'll see people uh, just wandering the streets. It's, it's, It's not a safe place. And I told her, if you are ever driving through Skid Row and you feel unsafe and you are caught at a red light and you just feel like people are converging down on your car, babe, run the red light. Run the red light, put the pedal to the metal, and get out of there. And if you get a ticket, I will pay for it. Why? Why would I say that? Why would I tell her to break the law? Because I want her to be safe. I want her to avoid unsafe and dangerous situations. For many of you, if you find out that somebody is dishonest, if you find out that someone might be abusive, right, You quickly learn to distance yourself from them. You unfriend them on Facebook. You delete their information from your phone. You do not want to spend time around unsafe people. We keep them at arm's length. If you find out that one of your coworkers is a gossip, then you are not going to tell them anything important. Anything important about your work, your managers, your projects. Why? Because they're probably going to trash you behind your back. And so you know that. We are naturally self-preservationists if you know that somebody will hurt you, if you know that somebody will betray you, it is common sense for all of us to stay away, is it not? We all naturally do this. The wonder of Christmas, the beauty and the power and the majesty of Christmas is that God didn't stay away. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, knowing and calculating and foreseeing all of the dangers, all of the pain, all of the sorrow that he was in for, if he walked upon this earth and he dwelled among us, Jesus didn't stay away. And instead, he drew near to us. He knew he was going to be despised. The prophets talked about the Messiah. Isaiah described the Messiah to come, that he would be a man of sorrows that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus knew that when he came upon the earth, that when he was born, when he took on flesh, that he was born to die. He befriended Peter and the rest of the disciples knowing that they would abandon him, knowing that they would betray him. He called Judas to come and follow him knowing that he would betray him with a kiss. He knew that Calvary's cross awaited him. And yet he didn't stay away. He didn't turn and run. He drew near. That is the beauty of Christmas, that out of love Jesus crossed the infinite divide between heaven and earth so that he could take on flesh, he could be one of us and save us from our sins. Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, and he's a pastor out in New York City, he writes this regarding the miracle, the majesty of the incarnation. Uh, this is what he says It's going to go up on the screen as well. He says, "Some have argued that the supreme miracle of Christianity is not the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but the incarnation. The beginningless, omnipotent creation of creator of the universe took on human nature without the loss of his deity. So that Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth, was both fully divine and fully human. Of all the things that Christianity proclaims, this is the most staggering. This is the most staggering. Why? Why? Because, you know, Jesus wasn't the first person to come back from the dead. Jesus himself rose Lazarus from the dead. Paul actually, while Paul was preaching one night and it was like late into the night, some, some guy like probably one of you guys saw like fell asleep during the message, right? And he fell out of a window and he died. And uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul brought him back to life. You see, the resurrection wasn't something that was completely foreign and alien to the world. But you know what it is the incarnation? Jesus Christ alone is the God-Man, fully God fully man. There has been no one like him and there will be no one like him to follow after him. He alone is the image of the invisible God. And now there are many of you here that might struggle with some of the stories in the New Testament, struggle with belief and faith in miracles, struggle with the idea of of a man dying and three days later coming back from the grave. You know what J.I. Packer says? Our faith in Christ begins with the incarnation. You see, if you do believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, then it's easy to believe that Jesus walked on water. Is it not? Then it is possible for Jesus to feed the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. Five fish and two loaves. Sorry, I flipped that. It's late now. I'm tired. Um, it's possible for Jesus to, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to raise the dead. Why are all of these miracles possible? Because Jesus is the God. Man, the gospel begins with the incarnation. The incarnation is the most staggering of the miracles that we see in the Bible. And in our passage today, we not only see the beginning of Jesus's earthly life, we also see a foreshadowing of the rest of it. In these verses, Matthew wants us to know three things about Jesus. We're in chapter one. We're in the very beginning. I spared you guys from like the dull, difficult to read, uh, a genealogy story, and we went right into the birth of Jesus. There are three things Matthew wants us to see: first, the origin of Jesus. Where did he come from? Okay, where did he come from? Where does the beginning of Jesus' story? Second, the mission of Jesus. Okay, who is he, and what does he come to do? Okay. Lastly, what does it mean to trust in Jesus? Okay. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to, to believe in him? to be his disciple, to exercise faith. And so we're gonna see three things, the origin of Jesus, the mission, and then what it means to trust in him. Verse 18, let's go back to the text. It begins with, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, okay? Now, as he's telling a story and he's recounting the birth story of Jesus, Matthew is explicit in his desire to point out two things about where Jesus came from about his birth and his origin. First, it's that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a virgin. Right? That's very, very important in this story. She was a virgin and, uh, and that uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that work? If you ask me, I'm going to say, I don't know, it's a miracle. It's mysterious. It's absolutely supernatural. Uh, I don't know the biology or the, the work behind it. I just, miracle, right? I hope that's Okay and that Joseph was the father of Jesus, the second part, that Joseph as the father of Jesus was the son of David. Those are the two things that Matthew wants us to know, okay? Mary's a virgin impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Second, Joseph was the son of David. Now, Joseph and Mary, they were, what the Bible tells us, were betrothed to be married to each other. Now, we don't use the word betrothed very often. Now, it's pretty much you're engaged because that's a pro- pro- proposal, the guy puts a ring on it, and then you're waiting to be married, and then there's marriage, where you actually like, sign the documents, do the ceremony, and it's either or. In Israel's day, right? Uh, betrothal is right in between. Betrothal is right, it's something in between engagement and marriage. Okay? This is why Joseph, in verse 19, he's already called Mary's husband. That's odd, right? Because if you have a fiance and you're engaged, you don't call yourself husband and wife yet. That would be awkward. It'd be a little presumptuous, right? But already, Joseph is called and he's considered Mary's husband, right? He considers Mary his wife. And that's also why after he finds out that she's pregnant and he kind of, he like loses, he loses it. And he realizes, man, I can't marry this woman. She is not faithful. He decides to divorce her okay? That's why, that, that's how serious their, their relationship was. It was not just an ordinary engagement where you're like, ah, oh, you know, I kind of have cold feet. Let's just call it off. Give me the ring back, please, and let's just go our separate ways. No, right? Joseph was already considered her husband, and if he was going to end it, he needed to divorce her, okay? That was where they were at in their relationship. They're not yet living together, The marriage hasn't been finalized fully and they haven't consummated their marriage. And if you don't know what that means, uh, you can look it up, but it's what every betrothed man is looking forward to. Uh, Yeah, you can giggle, that's cool. Um, But this is what happens. They're betrothed getting ready for marriage and then Mary's got that baby bump and Joseph knows that he's not the father. And he's like, where did that come from? Where did that come from? it must have been a crushing blow that struck Joseph to his heart. It must have afflicted his pride. And you see, here's the thing. Like we're so familiar with this story. We're so familiar with the story. We're like, oh, it's no big deal because at the end it was like the Holy Spirit that had impregnated Mary. And so God is the father. And so even though Joseph, you're not the father, God is, and it sounds like a Maury Povich show. Um, no big deal. We kind of gloss over it, but we need to pause. We need to pause and think about this. What must it be like to be engaged to the woman you love and you are ready to marry them and she shows up pregnant with a baby bump one day? How would your heart sink? How angry would you be? How disappointed would you be? How embarrassed would you be? Like, hey, mom and dad, sorry, we're calling the wedding off. Why? Because uh, my fiance got pregnant and it wasn't me. Like, What? How much must of that have crushed Joseph? Joseph was a righteous man, and he thought he was marrying a godly woman. But what kind of woman cheats on her husband during the engagement period? Brothers and sisters, uh, I am married, happily married, four years. I I was engaged for six months. If my wife got pregnant during that time, it would be over. Okay? It would be, there's no way, right? I'm not, and you know, honestly, and if I fathered a child during that time, Alice would have left me as well, okay? That's the reality. There is no way a man would marry an unfaithful woman in engagement and then expect her to be faithful in marriage. Did you guys know that in the English language, um, there isn't a derogatory phrase for a woman who's been cheated on by her husband, okay? Uh, There should be, right? But for some reason, maybe we're just a little like, you know, chauvinistic or, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, but uh, there's no, there's no, there's no word for that, but in Old English, there is a word, there is a derogatory phrase to describe a man who has, who has been cheated on by his wife, okay, and that word is a cuckold. That's what they call a man whose wife has committed adultery against him. That's what they call a man who can't keep his wife faithful, who can't keep his wife uh, committed and satisfied. And so if your wife commits adultery on you, they will mock you in the bars. They'll mock you in the town. They'll mock you in the village and be go, oh, there goes, there goes the cuckold. His wife sup around. His wife f- uh, had a baby with another man. And it was a derogatory term. And, and uh, for some reason, I learned that in British lit in high school and I never forgot it. I guess I have jealous ways or I'm just really afraid, or something like that. But the original phrase, it comes from the cuckoo bird, because the female cuckoo bird right, would lay her eggs in other birds' nests. So it's kind of like mischievous, kind of like funny. And so a female cuckoo bird would not lay her eggs in her own nest. She would just go around in other nests and drop in eggs, right? And so the same idea, be like, oh, there's your wife dropping eggs with another man, right? Making babies with another man, there goes the cuckold, okay? Term of great shame great embarrassment. Joseph was a cuckold, or at least he thought he was. He had every right to end things. He had every right to divorce her. She had been unfaithful. So what does he do? Matthew tells us Joseph was a man, and he did what most men would do. He decides to end it. He says, this is over. As much as I love Mary, I cannot do this. He decides to divorce her, but because he was righteous, he decided to divorce her quietly. You see, he knew she was in for a world of shame, a world of explanations to explain to her family, her friends, her neighbors, her community, like where this baby came from. Why aren't you married to Joseph? What happened? He knew that she would, she would be shamed, that her life was borderline ruined, so he didn't want to add to that pain, so he decides to quietly divorce her. But after he decides this, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream, and he declares, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew reminds us that Joseph is from the line of King David, Joseph himself, he's not aristocracy, right? He's not not like actual uh, royalty. He's not the king of Israel, but he is a descendant of David. And this is crucial because Matthew is reaching back into the Old Testament promises. He's reaching back into the prophecies made by, by Isaiah. Prophecies made and promises made from God to David himself that God would give Israel a Messiah, that God would deliver Israel, that God would save Israel, that God would, would establish the King of kings and Lord of lords in Israel from the line of David. So we see also that Jesus was not born of ordinary means. Okay? He wasn't fathered by ordinary men and ordinary men and women. No, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You see, in this passage, we see that it's not Mary who had been unfaithful, Rather, she had been faithful and God chose her. Mary had been chosen to carry the son of God. And it's not that Joseph had been unfaithful or that Joseph had been weak, but rather Joseph had been called by the grace of God to adopt and raise the son of God. You see, yes, Jesus was not Joseph's natural born son, but God was calling Joseph to adopt him as his own to love him as his own, to raise him as his own. And it is because of Joseph as a descendant of David, because through him we see that Jesus is both a son of God and the son of David. Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is the one who is the reality and the presence and the power of God walking on, among us. In our passage, we see that God gives his son two names. Okay? Jesus has two names in this passage, and they tell us about who he is, and what he's come to do. The first name is Jesus. And it's a shame. A lot of us as Christians, we don't know what Jesus means. right? We know what Christ means as the Messiah. We're just like Jesus is like Jesus. right? But uh, it literally means the Lord saves. Okay, Jesus means the Lord saves. And Matthew actually tells us right, that Jesus will be the one who will save us from our sins. Okay? The second name that we see of Jesus is Emmanuel. And once again, Matthew also lays that out. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. Why are these names important? Okay. Why is it important to remember who Jesus is and his name, the meaning of his names? Because they point to his mission. They point to what he has come to accomplish. And Israel, at that time, they were desperately waiting for a Messiah. At that time, Israel, they weren't a free and sovereign nation. They were under and they were subject to the Roman Empire. They had to serve Caesar. They had to pay taxes that were oftentimes oppressive to Caesar. And they were waiting, waiting waiting on God to deliver them, waiting on God to free them, waiting on God to liberate them. So they were waiting for their true king that would help them overthrow a tyrannical Roman empire and let them be free. Here's the problem. They were waiting on someone who resembled the past. Okay? They were like, man, we remember Moses. Moses, that great deliverer who got us out of Egypt, out from under Pharaoh, we need a Moses. Or they were like, we need a David again, a David who beat Goliath, a David who slayed the Philistines, a David who conquered the promised land for us. We need a David. We need a king like that. Or maybe they're waiting on an Elijah, a prophet They would come and give the word and the truth of God and, and they would see miracles just like how the fires came down on Mount Carmel. They're waiting for an Elijah to come. Here's the thing though. They didn't realize God had something much greater in mind. God wasn't gonna bring another judge. God wasn't going to bring just another earthly king. Rather, God was gonna bring himself. God was gonna send his son because he knew that Israel had bigger problems than Rome. He knew that Israel had bigger problems than poverty and hunger and disease. He knew that Israel had a bigger problem than death itself. What was the problem? The problem was sin. God knew that he had to save his people from sin. And the only one who could do that was his son, Jesus Christ. The Lord saves. Jesus came as the only one who could save us from their sins. You see, Moses couldn't do that, right? Moses, God used Moses to part the Red Sea. God used Moses to intimidate and just subjugate Pharaoh, bring him to his knees and say, let my people go. And he finally says, go. God used David to to slay the enemies of Israel. And yet what David, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, and all of the people of the Old Testament couldn't do was save their people from their sins. Only his son could do that. Only Jesus could do this. And the savior would be much more than just a godly and a mighty man. He was God himself. The second person, the Trinity, taking on human flesh to live and dwell among us. Church, do you hear the love and the provision of God when you hear that name, Emmanuel? Emmanuel. Do you sense the nearness of God, the tenderness of of how much he wants to be with you, how much he wants to dwell among you, how much he wants to make his presence known among you? Emmanuel, that he is for us, he is not distant. God, in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, he's drawn near, he's become like us so that in his perfect life and death and resurrection, he can save us from our sin. You see, Jesus is not just a savior; He is the presence of God with you and for you. Um, I uh, I grew up going on a lot of mission trips. I haven't been on one in a while, but I was always partial to mission trips where they spoke English, okay? And so if I ever went to Africa, as long as like Kenya or something like that, and they spoke English, I felt super comfortable. I went down to Mexico, and you could do Spanish and English, and that was really cool as well. Uh, and I was always anxious if I ever ended up in a country where, I didn't, where they didn't speak my language. Speak English, my language this is weird. Um, and so the first time I experienced this was Russia, right? I went to Russia. I didn't speak any Russian. The next time I experienced this was in Haiti, and I was like, oh, do they speak Spanish in Haiti? And they're like, no, it's French Creole. So I could not communicate at all. And so if you've ever been on a mission trip, whether it's to China or another country where they don't speak English, you feel completely helpless, right? Completely helpless until the translator comes. And when the translator's there, you feel so safe and so secure. When the translator comes, you know how to, how to go from place to place, get on the bus, order at the restaurant. When the tra- Honestly, I stress out so much about our ministry and our VBS and our programs and our games and, our, and my sermon when I'm on mission field. If there's no translator, I'm like, how is this gonna work? None of the kids are gonna understand a thing that we're saying, right? We're just waving our hands, smiling and dancing, right? But when the translator is there, everything feels strong, everything feels solid, everything feels secure, and it's gonna work, right? It's gonna work because I will say something, and the translator communicates that. So, so, I was desperately in need in all of those moments of our translator, okay? His presence made me feel safe. His presence made our team feel effective, right? Capable. Friends, I wanna say this. This is life with or without the presence of God, with or without the presence of God. Without the presence of God, our life is full of insecurity. Without the presence of God, our life lacks guidance and understanding. We ask God, what is going to happen with my life? What am I going to do? Where will we eat? Where will we work? What is the future going to hold? What will happen to my loved ones? What will happen to us after we die? What is going to happen, Lord? Without the presence of God, we are lost in darkness. The amazing truth about Christmas and the incarnation is that the light of the world has come in Jesus Christ and his light shines brightly in our darkness and in him we find security. In him we do find peace. In him we find guidance. In him we find hope for this life and the life to come. This is what Jesus has set out to accomplish, to save you from your sins and to offer you his life-giving matchless presence now how do we respond what do we do how do we apply this besides be like oh like nod our heads and and take some notes how do we apply the truth the saving work and the presence of God in our lives once again to quote a little bit of Tim Keller he was reflecting upon this passage he was reflecting upon the implications of the incarnation and he actually says there are three things we need to consider and these three things involve courage These three things involve trust and faith. And going back to the story of Joseph, the first is this. To follow Christ, to receive him in the fullness of his incarnation, it requires that we are willing to endure the world's disdain, okay? That we have the courage to endure and take on the world's disdain. Now, think about Joseph and Mary. Okay, angels spoke to them. And they resolve. They said, okay, good. We're going to be married. We're going to raise this kid. We're going to do this. The Lord has commanded. How do you explain that to your fa- parents and your friends and your family? You know what happens with a lot of married couples that have kids? They'll be, oh, were you trying? Like, oh, that's awesome. How, how many months has it been? They all do the math and they're like, wait, you weren't even married when that happened. Were you trying? Where did the baby come from? How did that happen? And they were being honest. And if they were, they were, they would say, oh, you know, actually, it wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit. And they're like, you are crazy. What have you been smoking and drinking? Right? I mean, who goes around and says, oh, we're pregnant, but, uh, but, but the Father is God. They're like, oh, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, we know metaphorically, but really. And they're like, no, 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 really, the Holy Spirit impregnated me. It takes courage. It took courage for Joseph and Mary to raise Jesus. It took courage for Joseph and Mary to testify to the origins of Jesus. It took Joseph and Mary courage to relay the truth that God and the angel had spoken to them. That's the kind of thing where you're like, I don't know if I should repeat that to anyone because it sounds so crazy. And yet Joseph was willing to take on the world's disdain because God was true and the Bible says may God be true and every man a liar there are some of you guys here who don't want your coworkers to know you're Christian there are some of you here that don't want your roommates to know that you're Christian you have a hard time even telling your family members that you are Christian so we do this like kind of quick meal thing. Maybe you're like out to lunch or in the cafeteria and they go up to the bathroom. Like, oh, that's my time. I can pray now. Like, you know, you say real quick or you reach down and you act like you drop something and you pick up a napkin. But you're like, well, Lord, thank you for this food and forgive me for not being ashamed, for being ashamed of you. You know, like we, we, we do these little things because we don't want the world's disdain. You don't want your friends to be like, oh, that guy's like a fundamentalist. Or even now today, that label evangelical Christian, it's associated with being a bigot. So we're like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that. We wanna distance ourselves even from Christianity because we don't want our coworkers and our friends to think we are losers or we're crazy or we're fundamentalists. Perhaps you are in the sciences and your classmates or your coworkers Ask you, wait, you're a Christian. Do you actually believe that God created the world? Panic, panic, right? Because you don't want to come off as as ignorant. You don't want to come off as unintellectual. See, friends, you and I, in so many ways, we shrink. We shrink from defending the truth of God, testifying to the truth of God, and if you and I want to truly be followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be willing to take on the Lord's disdain. It doesn't mean we go around and pick fights and, and picket and hold obnoxious signs, but it does mean that we're not ashamed to boast in the gospel. We're not ashamed to tell our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, that Jesus is Lord and that we belong to him. The second thing that we need is courage to give up your right to self-determination. Or in other words, the courage to give up control, okay? Do you know who named Joseph's son? It wasn't him. It was the angel. And back in the day, back in those days, the culture was very patriarchal. And so fathers had the authority. Fathers had the privilege. Fathers had the right to name their sons. And we even see this in the Western culture, right? That's why you see like Charles III or Edward IV, right? Fathers name their sons after themselves. They have that right. But you don't see mothers doing the same thing. You don't see like Elizabeth II or Grace IV, right? There's something weird about our like kind of like male dominant culture. But that was the case back then. The father's have the right. And even in our Korean culture, um, uh, when you have, if you have a kid and they want a Korean name, you know who names your kid? It's the father's side of the family. The mother's side of the family, they don't get that authority. The father's side, they'll bring up this like, old Korean scroll and be like, here are the letters and here's the line. And so their middle, their second like, syllable has to be this and whatever it might be. But that's all determined by the father's side. So this is what happens to Joseph. He is not the father of Jesus, He's told to raise this adopted son and you don't even get to name your son. The angel is gonna name him for you. God is gonna name him for you. You are gonna name your son Jesus. Joseph surrendered control. He surrendered his authority. He surrendered his right to self-determination. He let God name his son. He let God dictate his family. He let God guide his marriage. And he had plans he was like, I'm going to divorce. And if I could name my son, maybe I want to name him like, like Kobe. But instead, God said Jesus, and I'll obey. But this is what happens when we follow Christ. We have to allow God to name us. We have to allow God to lead us. We have to allow God to correct us. You have to be willing to surrender your control. Friends, each one of you here, each one of us, we have our little strongholds of control. Those things that we say, this is mine, this is me, this is my, this is, this is, I have set the course and I'm going to do what I want to do. Maybe for you guys, it's your academics. You've mapped it all out. You're going to go to this school, get, get into this program, have this kind of GPA, get into this grad school, then get that career, et cetera. Or maybe it's for your finances. And you're like, I know where every dollar and every cent is going. This is going to my retirement. This is going to my, uh, my, whatever, my debt Uh, paying off my debt, this is like, you know, expenses, vacations, all of that stuff. There are so many things in our lives where we want control. There are things in your life that you grip hard and you will not let go. God today is asking you, if he is your king, will you allow him to exercise authority over that? If he is your God, if he truly is all that he claims to be, how dare we disobey him? How dare we refuse to surrender and submit and give him control? We need to be the the kind of people who allow God to name us, even our own children, guys, even our own children. The third thing we need is the courage to admit that you are a sinner. The first was this, courage to take on the Lord's disdain. Second, the courage to give up our right of self-determination. Lastly, the courage to admit that you are a sinner. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to admit that you are a moral failure? That's heavy, is it not? Yet that's what the scriptures call us as sinners. Not just like, oh, we make some mistakes, we fall a little short. No, we are actually moral failures. You see, we come before God and we can easily acknowledge the bad things that we've done. Oh, Lord, forgive me for being angry and jealous, or God, forgive me for looking at something I shouldn't have, or forgive me for lying or deceiving somebody. But you know what we are reluctant to surrender and confess? The good things about you, your gifts, your abilities, your successes, your accomplishments. You take pride in those things, you do. You know what the Bible calls us? Apart from Christ and apart from faith, They're but rubbish. They're but filthy rags. Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. You see, when you truly understand Christmas, it's actually not just like good feelings and and peace on earth and, 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 and a jolly good time. Christmas is actually humiliating for all of humanity. It is humiliating for us. Why? Because it is a reminder that we could not save ourselves. It is a reminder that we were so lost, that we were so dead, that we were so hopeless that God had to send his one and only begotten son to live the life that you and I failed to live, to die on the cross, to rise on the third day so that you and I could be adopted into the family of God. That's how hopeless we were, that God had to send his own son to save you. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. I'm just, it should humble us. It should humble us. And if we truly understand Christmas and if we truly accept Christ as God incarnate, then we need to be able to confess and admit that we are sinners. Here's the good news. When you do this, when you and I come to an end of ourselves, when we are even able and ready to say, the best parts of me, God, are still filthy rags. That is how much I need you. That is how much I'm falling short. When we actually confess this, and when you receive Jesus, you know what you receive? Grace. Real grace because no longer is it you trying to save yourself or do your best and then Jesus kind of fills in the gap. No, you realize that you are completely bankrupt and it is all of Jesus and all of his work and all of his grace and all of his power that saves you. And you have no one to thank but him. Church, that is grace, that is joy, that is life-giving, that is liberating, because then you realize that God doesn't want you to be perfect anymore. Not in yourself, he knows you can't accomplish that. God doesn't need you to be religious and act the part and be outwardly righteous. You realize that God only calls you to be humble, to be repentant, to confess your sins and to seek his grace. That is the beauty of Christmas. That's the message of Christmas. That's the beauty of the gospel. But it takes courage. It takes courage for you to think that, to see it, to confess it, and to admit it. Church, would you consider these three challenges laid to us from the word of God, that you would be willing to take on the Lord's disdain for the name of Christ, that you would be willing to give up your control over your life, your family, your career, your hopes and dreams, and realize that God has a way and a plan for you that is much better. And do you have the courage to admit that you're a sinner desperately in need of his grace? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in Christ, we have a savior, a savior who can save us from our sins. We thank you that we have not only a savior, but we also have your presence, a demonstration of your love, a demonstration that you are not distant from us, but rather that you have drawn near to us and that you have dwelt among us. Help us to see how loved we are. Help us to see how prized and cherished we are as your sons and daughters. Father, I pray right now that you would call us to faith again. I pray, Lord, right now that you would call us to believe, to see your son, Jesus Christ, as he truly is, as the savior of the world, and as the revelation of your presence among us. Give us courage to believe. Give us courage to obey. Give us courage to surrender. Father, right now, would you bring us to an end of ourselves? We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.